0: How's everybody doing? Yeah. yeah, man. Yeah. Man, I just want to say, uh, our, our ushers in the back, can we give them a hand? Because the last, the last few months, they have been the unsung heroes. Look at them. They're just back there bowing each other, going, yeah, that's right. Because people come in going, you know, deer in the headlights trying to figure out, you know, where to sit down. They're going to start wearing these banners that say, 1115 is awesome. Um, and we are working through uh, some of the parking stuff at 1115. Our team has come up with some great stuff you'll hear in the next couple of weeks about places to park, ways to park, and ways to get here at uh, our 1115 gatherings. In fact, there was people that kind of used some of those strategies in the last couple of weeks and said, hey, they actually worked. We found some, some little slotted spots, and we walked, we dropped people off, and it, and it worked out. So... All right, well, if you got your Bible, uh, if you could turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 5. Who's been enjoying the Come and Listen series? It's been good. I really, you know, it's we, we thought about, you know, do we keep doing this thing? And the train started back in 2014, and we've made it all the way up to Nehemiah. We've been going through the entire narrative arc of Scripture, um, and we move in and out of the series. So if you've not been with us, that's kind of the way it works. And we just jumped back in. Um, last year, I think it was, we were... Uh, in Ezra and now we're in Nehemiah and again we'll bounce back out of this. we probably won't finish all of Nehemiah before we jump out of it and move on uh, into our summer series. but uh, it's been awesome. I love I love digging into the narrative art of scripture and seeing these individual stories of God's faithfulness, but then we step out of that and we see that every page whispers his name. everything leads to the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus who we sang about this morning. that's what our church is about. That's why God has us here, is to carry the name of Jesus here, there, and everywhere. Um, but I was thinking about, as I was digging into this passage, It, I'll tell you what, Today's very, it felt very personal as I read some things and as God kind of pulled out where we're headed. Because it's probably not the typical, when people read Nehemiah chapter 5, it's often uh, about Um, Our duty as family members, as human beings um, that we we carry, uh, we're image bearers of God himself to uh, take care of the poor, to those of us who are fortunate to make sure that we extend, that we don't abuse or leverage our position, our power, our wealth, um, and extract even more uh, from people that are less fortunate, and that is definitely a powerful way uh, to look at this passage, but sitting right in the middle of the passage was something that brought some deep conviction for me because it's an area I think um, God is working on and I've struggled through um, probably my entire life uh, just in, in terms of personality. Uh, and just to give you an example, a few years ago, actually it was, it was quite a few years ago, Ella was pretty small. When we moved here in 2010, uh, we immediately started like surfing horribly. Um, and my, my kids learned really quick and got really good, but I kind of went at it and, and was, was committed. <clears throat> and a few years after we were here, Uh, Actually brave enough to surf the south side of the pier, which a a lot of our people are actually down there right now. I think the ESA all-stars are happening, and we've got um, uh, several people from Ocean City Church that are in the finals, which is pretty awesome. But I was on the south side of the pier surfing with Ella and a bunch of other families. Uh, It was kind of a mellow day, clean waves. You know, it wasn't one of those aggressive days at the pier. And if you've been around here or you're in the surfing community, you know, there's kind of this age old thing. Wherever there's a pier and there's a surf break, there's this kind of battle between fishermen and surfers. Like, don't get too close to the pier uh, because you're, you know, you're. Grabbing my line and the surfers are like, well, that's where the best break is and where the sandbars are. So there's kind of this tension. It's not always that bad here. And it hasn't been bad since the pier's kind of back in position. But back then it was a little worse. Like there was tons of fishermen. The pier was a little lower. The good fishing spots were right in the in the breaks where the surfers like to surf. But we were pre- pretty good ways off. And I saw one guy up there just getting super irritated uh, with surfers, with families, with everybody kind of sitting there getting ready to get into waves. And I'm just sitting out there with Ellen. Ellen's young. I mean, she's probably seven, eight years old. And one of the guy just finally hauls off and just slings his weight as close as he could to where the, the, group, the group of us was. And I don't know if y'all know those fishing weights, like lead, big, fat, you know, like triangular weights just comes in and probably a foot and a half away from Ella's head as she's paddling. Now, I don't want to tell you what went on inside of me um, at that point. And again, I'm I'm not a big guy. I'm not like, you know, I'm not and I'm not I'm not that aggressive, but I'll tell you what, you, you come close to my kids, I'll take the boots to you. I don't care if you've done CrossFit your whole life. I will take you down. Like it will not there's nothing that you could do. It will just be all adrenaline and it will be over. Now I let that moment kind of take me, and, I, and what was funny is I kind of bobbled it for a second, and then it just started building inside of me. And Ella didn't even know, and I don't know that she knows to this day because I did not want her to know. I just rode a wave in. I hit the beach, and I started that mental process like, I think I'm going to murder that man. <laughs> and I went all the way around the corner, hit the pier. I passed, didn't pay my dollar to get on the pier. And a friend of mine who is like a, a surfing legend here at the beach uh, is standing right there watching me like this. And he goes, slow your roll, Turbo. You don't want to go out there. I saw the whole thing. And I stop, and I'm, I mean, he's literally holding me back. And he's like, "He's like, this is not going to go go well. He goes, I can tell you <laughs> from being around here, you need to turn around and go back out there with your daughter and just call it a day. You know, I'll take care of this. So I say all that, and I, I did. I went back out there, paddled out. Ella didn't know. We just kind of cruised around. And I was out of the corner of my eye watching him like, you just lived um, but we all get angry what you're going to find in this passage tucked in there is that Nehemiah gets extremely angry and when I think about my anger it's easy for me to go okay it was justified but how like how do we handle that like where do we where do we go with that we all get in 2023 it's triggered I mean that's the new it's the word you know it's so triggered yeah just can't believe that, you know, it's all over memes, you know, all different things that are out there, it's triggered, 2023, um, and, you know, you're going through all the stuff, and what, what is it that triggering? what are your triggers, I, that's mine, you know, I, when I grew up, this happened, and now when you do that, um, it's a real thing, so I was reading in psychology today, you know, as we, as we dig in in this passage, it's amazing that humans are humans, you look at an ancient text. And you see human beings doing human things. And it, it is so relative. God knew. God knew as, as Nehemiah's journaling, he had no idea this was going to be a part of the sacred text, the God-breathed text, that God would use him by the power of the Holy Spirit to give us wisdom. But you see it right here in the center of this passage. But as I was thinking about anger, I was, I, I was looking at the, just the... like. I think we always think of it as a negative thing. Um, and in Psychology Today, it says we feel angry... When we perceive a threat, something that's unfair, unjust treatment, which is the case in this passage, or a violation of our rights or dignity. When someone disrespects or betrays us, uh, we can use, you know, this assertive anger. Anger can also motivate us to problem solve, overcome obstacles, achieve our goals, right? When you're on the football field, you're kind of slapping the guy. Come on, man, get into it, right? There's anger there. The guy goes, yeah, I'm going to tackle that man. When anger is out of control, anger can become problematic and destructive and may lead to multiple psychological, physiological, and behavioral problems. So you see the the scope. Just like I always think about anger like the internet. The internet is benign. In and of itself, it's a gift that technology has given us through the minds that God has given us, right? But the internet can be used for what? It can be used for good. It can be used for bad. Anger actually is one of those things that God has wired inside of us, but it can be very problematic. This is when it becomes maladaptive and, and uh, non constructive anger. It can be associated with aggression and violence. Such behaviors are more likely, listen to this, are more likely to happen when people fail to identify and express their feelings of anger. Which is interesting to me because I think we all think about okay, I gotta control my anger, I gotta suppress the anger. But there's something that's going on. We're the most impatient generation statistically. Uh, and I looked up a lot of things. We're, we're, we are the most angry generation. Actually, my generation, Generation X. I don't know why we're so angry, but we are. It just it is. Um, we we are a, one of those generations that just we and we we tend to express it. Um, but we are we are an angry angry crew. Um, but as you as you look at this, I, I want to ask this question as we dig into this passage: How do we move from reacting in our anger and stress to responding to our anger and stress? So let's look at what Nehemiah does. I think it's amazing uh, to find this in Scripture. If you've got your Bible, in Nehemiah chapter 5, it says, Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, We and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Okay, so you're in Jerusalem, just to give us some context. Were the, the, the wall is, is trucking along. It's more than halfway done. Uh, they're kind of buttoning things up, but there's still a lot of work to be done. Uh, and if you haven't been with us in the series, you've got Nehemiah, who is, you know, was the cupbearer to the king in the most powerful empire at the time, king of Persia, Artaxerxes. You can look him up in history. And cupbearer was not like a blue-collar worker. This guy was an insider. This guy was a politician. This guy was close to the king. They were buddies. They had meals together. He drank the best wine. But he, his heart was broken by the power of the Holy Spirit and just by the fact that he knew that his brothers and sisters were 800 miles away in Jerusalem and they were suffering, that they had no walls. And walls, we said at the very beginning of the series, were absolutely necessary. It's like, not, it's like having a city without a police force. Like it, it would be absolute chaos and anarchy. So he, with that burden on his heart, waits, prays, asks God what needs to be done, and He goes to Jerusalem. All that gets paid for by Artaxerxes, just a miracle of God. Nehemiah leverages his political power, leverages just the way that he uh, was honorable to get all the supplies. Everything was paid for. The wall's being built. There's been opposition, right? In Nehemiah chapter four, we saw that there's people even in and around, people that they were related to, other Jews that were upset about the building of the wall because it was going to change their society. It was going to change their culture and they didn't like change. But here in Nehemiah 5, this is like an internal opposition. So you had external opposition in Nehemiah chapter 4 with Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. Like they, didn't, they were like, hey, we, we, we're an external factor. We're trying to shut this thing down. Now we've got an internal problem. We've got something that's going on. You've got people that are brothers and sisters, sons and daughters that are numerous, and they need to eat and stay alive. They must get grain. Verse three, it says, others were saying we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine. So there's a famine. There's economic crisis. I mean, I love this because I think, you know, as I was watching the news this week, I was watching the interest that feds raising the interest rates and economy. You look at gas prices. And for us in the West, it's, you know, I think people get irritated, like, oh my gosh, I can't, I can't fly to Bora Bora this year. The plane tickets are too much. But for people across the globe, it's a real economic crisis, right? There is a real thing that, that's happening, and that's what's happening here. These people are borrowing money. They're, they've let they're over leveraged. I mean, we know what that's like here in America to, to spend more than we uh, than we make. Um, these these people are doing just that. They're mortgaging their fields, their houses, vineyards, everything to get grain during this famine. They've got money problems. They're even, they're even saying, hey, take my son, take my daughter. They can be your servant so that you can pay it back. And then they started charging elevated interest. Um, people estimate that it was around 12%. I mean, people It's amazing the people that study the Bible can figure out and deduce, based on what was going on, that, that's, that they were charging this elevated interest and it was very difficult to pay back short terms. And if they didn't do it, then there was a penalty for that. So... Money problems. So Nehemiah didn't have money problems paying for the wall. He had money problems that existed outside of that. It's like being, like if you're in a church community, many times it's like, okay, the, the bills of the church are being paid. But many times there's, there's people within the church that are suffering that you don't know about. There's people that have financial issues that you don't know about. People that are in distress. People that their world is literally falling about apart because of financial problems. And what's amazing about the church and what's part of the church's position is that, hey, we are a family. And those of you that have a lot, uh, we, we create opportunity to make sure that we that people are taken care of, that people find their way on the on-ramp back to uh, a stable place, to have a roof over their head, to have food for their, their kids and can figure out ways to have a job and then begin to provide for themselves. So that's that's community. That's what's What's being brought up here that within the community, the, the, the wall's not being built because people are like, we got to take care of our own. I'm not going over here to, to, to labor on the wall or to be one of the guys that's protecting while they are laboring on the wall because i got issues at home. We're not even eating. There is a famine in the land. So when we look at verse 6, if you jump down there, this is Nehemiah. Now remember, this is, this is Nehemiah journaling. So when we study this passage, what most commentators and theologians believe, this is Nehemiah, he's writing this journal, and, but, but for the benefit that people, he, would, he knew people were going to read it, a journal, like a public journal. It says, when he heard their outcry, it says, he says, when I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. In verse 7 it says, I pondered them, in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials and I told them you're charging your own people interest so I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said as far as possible we we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles he's saying we've we've got a remnant back and then we've got more back some came with Zerubbabel some came with Ezra we've literally got them out of exile and there's a small number of us that have made it back to our homeland We've gone to all this work. He's using logic to say, hey, can't you see this? Look, we've, we've done all this work to get these people back here. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. He goes on, he says, so I continued, what, what you're doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of God to avoid the reproach of our Our Gentile enemies. Now, what Nehemiah is referring to there is hey, you should fear God because when you don't and the mercy of God is removed temporarily, guess what happens? Our Gentile enemies take us off into exile. That's that's God's way of of reproach. That's God's way of saying, okay, you want to go your own way and do your own thing. Momentarily, sometimes you have to let people go do their own thing and see what happens. God sometimes goes hands off. Like that's the way his wrath works sometimes. He's like, okay. You want to roll your own way? You want to intertwine yourself in the Babylonian culture and do the things that they do? Drink the things that they drink? Worship the gods that they worship? I'll let let that happen. And then all of a sudden, they find themselves in exile. So he's like, hey, don't you guys remember? This This is what happened last time. When we start treating people like the pagans do, then reproach happens. He says, I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let us stop charging interest. It's interesting to me that Nehemiah here, in his tact, this guy is a politician. Do, do you see how he doesn't just make a charge, but he puts himself in the boat too? He says, look, hey, we're all we, I understand what's going on here. I understand that we have to, hey, we have stuff. We, we, we have to lend them things, and we expect payment back. But hey, let's not charge them interest. Now jump down to 17, and we'll cap it right here, and then we're going to talk for a minute. He says, Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table. So Nehemiah's getting ready to talk about the fact that as a governor, that Artaxerxes had laws in place, that some of the taxes were set aside, that he would always have food. Not just like food like normal people have, but like nice food because he's a governor, because he's a high-ranking government official. That there'd be a tax on the people, of their food, of their animals, of their stuff, they would all come back to the you know the government building. You know, they'd come back to the government households. It would come back to the nobles and to the officials, and they would have food, and they wouldn't because they're doing the government work. They're getting something from the people, very much like our system works. We we get taxed so that police officers are on the street. We get taxed so that property gets taken care of. We get taxed so we take care of, so the people that run the government can get paid. So that was part of that. So he's explaining this in this passage all the way down into 17. He wants us to know, whoever's reading this journal, that this was his position. It says, furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table. So he's saying this was a big deal. A lot of food was being extracted, a lot of tax, as well as those who came to us from surrounding nations. So when people visited, we had these big feasts. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me. And every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, now this is, this is where it gets interesting. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. So what you find out if you continue to read that passage is that for the next 12 years, he basically said, no more of this food stuff. I'm refusing it. I'm not going to tax the people. I'm not going to extract that. And for the hundreds of nobles, you guys aren't getting it either. It's all going back. We're not going to take it anymore. We're going to eat like everybody else eats. We're going, to, we're going to earn our keep like everybody else does. We're going to eat grain like everybody else does. We're going to put ourselves in the position that everybody else is in. He put himself, he did something pretty incredible there. And I, I want you to, as we, as we look at this passage, that will come back around and you'll see something about Nehemiah's response rather than reaction. Look at what Nehemiah does. A tiny phrase that could be easily missed, but it's, but it's so important as you look at it. In verse 7. So he became very angry when he found out that there was these, these, it was injustice in, in his mind. I mean, everybody that's looking around and, and he's, he's making sure that everybody sees it. Like they, I don't think they even knew how unjust it was that people that were less fortunate were getting pushed down even further. And Nehemiah became very angry. Now, what was his next move to start screaming and yelling at people? Right? No. It's, this sits right here in between the rebuke and the correction. He says, I pondered them in my mind. Some of your translations say, I took counsel with myself. So I said, self, I'm angry. I mean, that right there, I mean, we let's go home. I mean, if we did that, that would change your day or your week in in a lot of moments, right? Some of your translations, actually, the commentary I read said, after serious thought. My man said, I'm gonna take a beat. I'm real angry. I see what's going on inside. I can feel myself in this moment. And he says, I'm gonna take a moment. Some of you would say, I need to get regulated. 2023. It's interesting. It, 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 is a, it is a term that, that we use. And I mean, it's been around for a long time. And uh, if you've studied social psychology at all, I mean, they put it on a scale of one to 10. I think I've explained this before. And I think, you know, when, when you do get angry, I mean, just as we dive into this, I mean, I think about these people, Nehemiah says he got very angry. So psychologically, what's happening is cortisol, other um, fight or flight hormones are, are coursing through his veins, right? And when, when, when that happens, when th- those, those hormones start to course through your veins, cor- cortisol happens, when all of a sudden, when that weight dropped right next to my daughter, all of a sudden, what happens to the body, what happens to the brain, what happens all over you is your kind of prehistoric brain is the only thing engaged at that point. Like, I've gotta, I need to survive. I need to fight. I need to be aggressive here. I need to be, and guess what? Shuts down. And this physically happens in the brain. Rational thought. All of a sudden, the, the, the frontal lobe begins to kind of disengage, and you begin to go into that prehistoric portion of your brain, which all of a sudden starts making very practical decisions based on the anger. But the irrational side of, hey, let's think about the future. Let's think about exactly what's happening. All the stuff that we probably need to be thinking about when stress and anxiety and anger pop onto the, to the scene and getting regulated, all that means, been around for a long time, is like when you're at a five, you're, you're good. Regulated. Everything's good. You're, you're engaging your, uh, your frontal lobe and your prefrontal cortex in a good way. You're awesome. And then you, in fight or flight, you're either going to be down to the, you're going to s- scoot down to the one, which is I'm despondent, I'm kind of you know, moving away, I'm kind of, I might shut down. I mean, that's some, that can be personality-driven. Like when something bad happens or you're offended or something is creating anxiety or somebody disrespects you, you might go down to the one. That's not me. I'm going to go up to the ten. That's the angry zone. That is, I'm irrational. I'm explosive. I'm saying things that I might not mean, but I'm getting defensive. I'm, I'm moving in that direction. So, What's amazing about what's happening in this passage is right here, what does he do? He gets very angry, and then he what? He stops. He takes a beat. He says, and then I pondered this, this whole situation in my mind. I mean, I, I, that right there just went boom. I'm like, okay, there's a whole nother sermon about how we minister to the poor. But oh my goodness, is there, is there an amazing place to dive in when it, when it, when it comes to how do we How do we deal with, how do we respond rather than react? How how do we respond rather than react? And I want us to see four ways that we can respond rather than react. And you're going to find little bits and pieces of these kind of strewn all through the passage. And we'll find these all in Scripture about how we take a beat, how we pause as human beings. Now the world, like I think in, in science and when you look in social psychology circles, it's all about understanding and knowing yourself. But this passage and the Bible and Christianity is not just it's, it's really more about not not just knowing yourself, but knowing God and knowing the Savior, tapping into what's possible because of your relationship with God. So number one, when we look at ways to respond rather than react is anger awareness. Like right now, I think that's that's where we are. We're like in that place of actually thinking about anger. OK, anger's got some helpful things, but many times in our world, like the reason I think years ago, anger was probably a more appropriate emotion in, in, in the survival scale, but we don't live in Maslow's hierarchy of needs in the, I need food, I need shelter, I need water. It's the lower order in the Maslow hierarchy of needs. We're more in the self-actualization and self-awareness. So we get angry when there's attacks and territorial moves against what? Our self-esteem, our worthiness, how good we feel about ourselves. So we got to be aware of our anger. It says this, and he's obviously aware. Verse 6 says, When I heard the outcry and I saw what was happening in these charges, I was very angry. We're physically wired to do that. It's in our fight or flight response. But notice what Nehemiah does. I want us to see this. He's, he's aware, obviously, he's aware of his anger because he's writing about it. Nehemiah did not repress his anger. He didn't become passive aggressive and bottle it, and then he didn't call or text a friend and start trash talking rich people, and he didn't do any of those things. <laughs> he was aware of his anger and what provoked it, and he responded. Like, I think sometimes we, we 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 think, okay, I'm, I need to bottle this. Like our our response. Some, some of us don't even know that we do this. We take the anger, the cortisol's going. Those those stress hormones and anxious hormones and anger things that are happening inside of us that's still going but we're like, I got it that's going somewhere, right? It's you, we're we're bottling that up. I mean, physiologically, it can actually destroy you. I mean, if we went into and started studying science right now, we could go down the road of what that does and how distract. Like cortisol going up and going down in a stressful situation, that's fine. But what happens is it gets locked in there. And starts doing some things that you don't want it to do. It gets it's it's going to come out somewhere. We think let's push it down. Let's not talk about it. Let's let's keep this, you know, out of the realm of anger. It's interesting. We we uh, we did this for years, and we still do it throughout the year in smaller groups. Something called the Freedom Course. And we talk about problem emotions. And anger is a problem emotion. Now, not always. Sometimes it's an appropriate emotion. But it's definitely one of those indicators that if we're aware of it, will allow us to see what it is that we're after in a moment when we get angry. What is it that's being stole from us in, the, in that moment that made us angry? You know, is it our dignity? What injustice in the laws that we've set up for ourselves has happened? And this is when it gets tricky. This is when it gets sinful, right? Because this is what we call idolatry. Like when somebody encroaches on our territory or gets in our business in a way that we don't want them to, all of a sudden we can become heightened because it feels like to us it's injustice, but we're not really digging down that deep. I'll read something from the Freedom Course real quick and you'll get kind of an idea. Anger. Uh, Strong feelings of annoyance, displeasure, or hostility arise when I feel deprived of something crucially important to me. Anger results when I react emotionally to an injustice done to me or a violation of the laws that I've set up. Because we all have our own set of laws. We're all Pharisees in our own little religious world of these are Derek's laws and don't violate these. You better respect me. You better do things this way. Why would you do it that way? We all have our own set of laws. And it's interesting, as I've done the freedom course with guys over the years, every single time there's one or two guys that say, I don't get angry. I'm like, okay, all right. Now again, I'm an anger person. I mean, not crazy angry. I mean, i all got to have this view of me like well, he's wild, you know? I'm not. I mean, come on. You gotta get in the boat with me. But you get it. Like it's like I don't get angry. And then I'll go. Well, you get irritated. Oh yeah, I get irritated in traffic. I want to kill people. I'm like, okay, we're all, we're all right. You get what I mean? So, and, and that's an indication of, hey, we, we need to dig a little deeper. There needs to be a little bit more awareness of the anger because it's going to highlight something first that moves us on to the second thing when it comes to responding rather than reacting. Ask God to search your heart. In verse 7, he says, I pondered them in my mind. And he doesn't directly say it, but you, you find out later in his response that that's what he did. Like This is how he, this is how he addressed everything in decision-making. This guy was the guy that always went to God first. Everything that Dave preached was about where Nehemiah, what was his default every single time anything arose, whether he was sad, whether he was bawling and crying and emotional about distress. Where did he go when he was pondering? He went to God with those very things. He took a time out. He waited. He took a beat. I love what Psalm 139, when I think about David, when David was in, when you read the Psalms, it gives you an amazing picture, not only of anger awareness, but what it looks like to stop internally, think about yourself, but don't stay there. I think, you know, without God and without a relationship with Jesus, yes, people would say, well, what else, what else can I do but understand and know myself? That's not what David wanted. He wanted to know God. He wanted to be close to God. He wanted his proximity to God to be closer. He knew that in, in himself that he was going to be sinful. He knew that within himself his passions would, would overcome him. He knew that he had a sinful heart. So he, he went through these, he would openly come before God and express himself just like Nehemiah did. In verse 19 in Psalm 139, he says, If only you, God, would slay the wicked. I love that he's just like, he just goes before God and says, These people are terrible. I hate them. Away from me, you who are are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with ill intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I I mean, I love this statement. I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. So he's expressing, he's obviously angry. Like David had several seasons in life where people that he loved came against him. People that he knew came against him. He knew what it meant to be angry. But where does he bring it? He brings it before God. But, but listen, he blows up, has his angry fit, and then listen to the transition in his words. And I, this, is, this got in me this week. First time I ever thought about it in context with, I'm very angry, I need to go this, to this place. What does he say in verse 23? Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. He's saying, hey, I'm angry. Is there any sin in there in this with me? Is this, is this just them or is this me? He says, see if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. He's like, is there sin there? Am I being territorial? Like they came in and they, they were just a little too pretty, you know, and I got a little bit angry. It's that passive thing where we, somebody comes in and encroaches in our territory or gets in our world. Or we have our own set of laws in our mind about the way life should be. And here comes the person that's just not like us. And they violated those laws. I mean, that's having roommates when you're in college. You get in there, you grew up squared away. Like you grew up military family like me. And everything's like hospital corners. Your dad comes in and checks and looks at everything. And you can't even touch the windshield when you get in the car because he's going to be like, ah. You know, and you get in a roommate who's like, "Ah," undressing from the front door to his room. Never cleaned a dish in his life. What happens? You get angry. Why? Because your laws got violated. Somebody, somebody jacked up your world. And you have to work through it. you got to say, is, 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 there, is there wickedness? Is there something that I need to be okay that I've put at a, at a high order? And he's like, lead me. I want to know. We ask God, is this justifiable anger? Do I have all the facts? Man, I, I got so many, so many hilarious phone calls in during covid Um, Because people would call, and they would hear something, right? They'd say, you know, I heard at your church, y'all are doing this. And it would be completely false, you know. But they had heard and talked to somebody, talked to somebody, and then somebody posted something about something. And then this political candidate did this, and they were doing this in the city, and this is what was happening. And all that gets projected on whatever. And they would go on and on and on. I heard the church is doing this. I can't believe this is happening. It would be a long, drawn-out conversation. I'd go, yeah, that's untrue. And they go, oh, really? I heard th- you heard wrong. And they didn't have all the facts. And it was it just happened over and over and over again where we come to the table and we, we get heightened by information that might not be true. We watch the news and, and things that things that they they're there to elevate you because it engages you. It's what they do. News channel. I don't care what you watch, CNN, Fox, whatever you watch, they're both doing the same thing. They are engaging the brain, they're they're raising your cortisol levels, they're getting you passionate about things that maybe you shouldn't be so passionate about. Maybe you should redirect that passion towards Jesus and not towards whatever it is that's going on on the TV. I mean, that's what's happening here. We got to ask God, search my heart. Is this my own sin? Is this my own insecurity? I was recently, this is so funny, I told Beth, and she's like, you know, I'm glad you see your sins so well now. Um, (laughs) I was in in my backyard, so some of you know, I I had my house renovated, it was a really wonderful gift, and I I want you to know, before I tell this story, I'm very thankful for everything they have done. Um, And HGTV, I love you, and I know you don't pay me, but I do love you, despite this story. Um, So... We, we, they put, uh, like, I'm a big yard guy. I like to, you know, I'm, it's, my, it's my canvas, you know. I like to paint, you know, with my grass and all my stuff, you know. I like to put things in certain places and pick all the plants out. So I, it, I had a little bit of a hard time with them doing all my landscaping, just a little. And, of course, I'm going to be judgmental about it. So I came in, and they had put ligustrums on every, like, all, all on the fence line. Which some of you are like, that would be amazing. That must have been really expensive. Yes, it was. But legustrums are big and bulky. you got to cut them all the time. They're going to push the... Okay. I didn't want the legustrums, So I'm out in the corner of my yard and in this one spot. And I've already kind of in my mind thought, I'm going to paint it this way and put these flowers here and these here. And I started pulling plants out, you know, and going, you know, and Beth walks out. Who usually trusts everything that I do when it comes to the yard. Comes out and she goes, what are you doing? Is is do you know what you're doing? And I'm like, (laughs) did you? And she's like, I don't know. You know, do you want to think about what you're doing before you just start pulling it all out? Because I'm one of those people that like, hey, we're gonna retile the kitchen that night. I'm pulling off baseboards just to make sure that I do it. Because if I don't do that, then I'll change my mind in the morning. Like, it's probably not the best strategy that was me with the plants. And so I don't know what happened, but we kept going in the conversation and eventually I just got so frustrated. I'm okay, that's fine. I'll just put them back. And I'd already dug them up in the corner. I just (laughs) threw them, left them there, sprayed a little water on them, walked in the house. I was so angry. And now it's so funny. This is months later. That was last year. You look, all the ligustrums are beautiful. They line the fence. They're all grown up. And there's, you look in the corner and it's like, it's like a daily reminder of my anger management issues. <laughs> like I have to look at it and go, "What? Where, <laughs> what did she encroach on?" Though I had laws, I was like, "You always trust me. You always believe. Like you, you always respect the landscaping." And she came in and said, "That don't look right." And I was like, <gasps> "You know, my insecurities. Like that's idolatry. It's funny, but it's idolatry. We do this in life, in the minute by minute and the hour by hour." We 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 have to in a moment what ponder it in my mind, I gotta go, what am I, what am I, before I rip it and just throw it against the wall. What am I doing? Is there gonna be regret, right? Is there gonna be regret in these words that are coming out like bombs in a conversation? Is there gonna be regret? Am I gonna look in the corner of my relationships and go, look at the rumpled up mess I have made in the relationship I have with my friends or my family or with my wife? Because I let anger in a moment take over me. And I didn't do it in Nehemiah. And I didn't ponder in my mind. I didn't take a minute. I didn't, after serious thought, I think I'm going to shut it down and say something different. This is a, I mean, this will change your life. And, and even thinking about that, look at, just look at number number three. We'll move through these other ones pretty, pretty quickly. But rain your brain. Like this is this is the same thing. If you look at the word right there, that whole idea of consulting himself, that word consult. Check this out in verse seven when he says, I ponder this this in my mind. The word means, listen to this, reign, rule, make, make king or take back authority. You know what he was doing? He was about to give over authority to what? Another part of his brain and to the enemy. And he says, you know what, I'm, in this moment I'm gonna ponder. I'm gonna take a beat. I'm gonna take back what? I'm gonna reign. I need to, I need to reign this. I need to I'm about to make the wrong thing the king. I'm gonna I'm gonna make the I, I couldn't believe it was there. I read it and I was like, rain? What does rain have to rain it in? He's like, I wanna, I, I don't wanna be owned, because what happens when people make you angry is they own you. They don't even know that they own you. I, I put this little meme up here, I can't help but use it, but. This is somebody owning you right here. When you insta post yourself at an invite only party and it triggers the people it was meant to. See that face right there? That's I own you, right? You're at home going, oh, God, I can't believe it. He owns you. That's the enemy's face. It's what he wants. He wants to own you. He knows when he has you. In that moment when you lose it, when you explode, it's not that justifiably you don't explode. There's a moment. Jesus turned over tables. But I can tell you, with everything that, that's in me, it was justified. Nehemiah, he spoke strongly to these people because they were oppressing the poor. But it says, and then he spoke. Before that is what we need to look at. He pondered it in his mind. After serious thought, then. He formulated a plan. Rain the brain. That's amazing to me that that's in there. Fourth, And last, respond boldly, tactfully, and humbly. He says, what you are doing, right there in verse nine, what you're doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentiles, enemies? I, my brothers and my men also are lending the people money and grain, but let us stop charging interest. You see the tact, you see the boldness in which he obviously says something, doesn't repress it, doesn't hold it back, doesn't get passive aggressive and call friends. He tells them what he needs to tell them. He goes to their face and says it. If we, that's, we could just go out on that. Talk to people directly. Not around them. Not to other people. Not in gathering your, your group of people. That can, you can come against them and say, you can't, can you believe they did that? I don't can't believe they did No, he went to them, his people. And then he puts himself in the bucket. I and my brothers and my men also were lending the people money and grain. Yeah, we're in this, we're lending people, but hey, let's not. He uses, he says, let us. He says, he didn't say, don't you. That's a different statement. Let us. He gets in it with his friends. Let us. Not don't you. Tact. My man was tactful, he was responding and not reacting. Nehemiah was an honorable, honorable human being. Notice that he doesn't ascend. He descends. He doesn't say, now that I've told you what you need to do, he doesn't just go back to his castle or back to his government building or go back and go sit back with his Nicolas Cage face. <laughs> I got this. No, he puts himself in it with them. He says, you know what? We're all going to do this together. He descends. He gets in the space with them. Mercifully, he gives grain back. He gives sheep back. He gives the animals back. He gives the food back. He gives the taxes back for 12 years. It's a different way of reacting. The Apostle Paul does the same thing. First Corinthians chapter 9. He says, I'm free. I'm a son of God. I, I am I an am inheritor of everything that is Jesus. I'm free from any and all men. He's saying, I don't need a resume. I don't have to show you how great I am. I don't, I don't, that, I'm, that life is my past life. He says, I'm free, but I make myself a slave any and all that I might save some. He says, I'll do whatever. I want to see things from everybody's perspective. I don't want to judge people. I want to get in their world. I want to get in the boat with them and say, how do you see this? You didn't grow up in church. Or you've been in church your whole life, but you've missed Jesus because you're so religious and you're a Pharisee. How do you see this? I can certainly understand that. I'm the Apostle Paul. I was a Pharisee. He, He wanted to see it from their perspective. He descends instead of ascends. What does that remind you of? Jesus. He set aside everything. He set aside his scepter of authority, his his throne. It says in Philippians 2 that all of that was set aside, that he didn't even try to hold on to his or grasp or clasp his authority. He set it aside. He gave it away to become nothing, not just nothing, but nothing to the point of dying on a cross and extending us mercy when we deserved anger and wrath. You know, I grew up in my My dad didn't do, do a lot of things right. Um, and like any of us sinful, but he was pretty good at extending, extending mercy in certain areas. You know, I, I, as a, as a young man and my, and my brother and my mom, we, we just, we were hard on cars, <laughs> just hard. My poor dad, he took care of them, like just petted them, you know, he loved them. And we were like Tommy boy. We were just like, Pruh! you just crush them. You know, he just, it was all the time. Beth knows what it's like. We were kind of in that same. The Harmons just are bad on cars. Um, we just beat them up. And my kids know it. Um, and my mom, she would, she would drive big vehicles like K5 Blazers. And the, the, the mailboxes in our neighborhood were never safe. Like, she would just, those mirrors that hang out, she just would launch them like skyrockets. <laughs> we're like, woo! there goes another one, mom. She'd put a check in the mailbox and just set it on the front porch. Um, but i would get in a wreck and you know when you get in a wreck you think my dad's going to kill me he's going to he is going to be so angry and my dad was so particular his his the, his cars and when you borrow his car oh, i just yeah crumpled up a a good one and I, i'd come home and my expectation was this is i'm getting ready to have to i'm going to be working at the car wash for the rest of my life and I remember my dad just extending me mercy. I don't even remember my dad getting angry. I just remember him paying for it, getting it fixed, and that was it. Like him looking at me and being happy that I was okay, hugging me, and extending me mercy when I deserve some wrath. And I just thought, man, how, how beautiful is that? And I, I maybe you're in here today, and you're like... I, My relationship with God is is so distant and I don't know how he feels about me. And I I just want you to, to know this. Although you deserve wrath, all of us in the room do, he's extending you mercy today. He is extending you mercy. Every crumpled up mess that you've made, everything that you've crushed, the anger is not coming towards you. In fact, Jesus came down to earth to get in the mess with you. He wasn't sinful, but he took on your sin. He didn't make mistakes, but he took on your mistakes. Took them all the way to the cross, and he bled out on Mount Calvary so that you and I didn't have to be in fear of the anger and wrath that we deserved. He took it all, every bit of it, and he did it for you. Let's stay.